thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. As a child growing up in the 80s and 90s, my friends and I sometimes used to pretend we were pro wrestlers, which was all the rage on TV at the time. Wrestlers like The Ultimate Warrior or Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair and The Undertaker were all a part of our playground games, just as much as the Transformers or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were. Uh, One of the craziest things that I ever saw in a TV wrestling match was an event called a Royal Rumble. Has anybody ever seen a Royal Rumble before? I can't be alone in this. Tim, put your hand up. Don't leave me hanging. All right, Ian's also seen a Royal Rumble. Well done, brother. Uh, In a Royal Rumble, two wrestlers start in the ring, and then every two minutes, another wrestler is added into the mix. And the goal is to throw the other wrestlers out, and once they hit the floor outside the ring, they're eliminated. And sometimes what will happen is two of those wrestlers who've been fighting each other will then team up on somebody else. It's a free-for-all as they try and eliminate their opponents to take on the title of being the king of the ring. Well, this week when we read this passage, it looks a little bit like Abram walks into a royal rumble. Uh, Nine kings make war with each other in the land that has been promised to Abram. As we walk with Abram through this threatening situation, we're going to consider the international conflict that he's drawn into. And then we'll look at Abram's victory as he enters the fray, and finally we'll see him wrestle with two kings and two choices. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you that you speak to us by your word. Would your Holy Spirit bring it alive to us now? As we think about the conflicts that we see in this world, would you cheer us and give us hope? As we think about the victories that you deliver through Jesus, would you help us to rejoice? As we think about the two choices that we have before us, would you help us to choose in a way that is pleasing to you? Speak to us by your word, we pray. Amen. Well, you'll remember at the end of chapter 13, Abram had settled in the promised land of Canaan, and he'd allowed his nephew Lot to take the first choice of two options in terms of grazing land, and that was so that he would avoid conflict between them. Uh, because Abram had responded by faith, choosing or letting Lot choose first, not by sight, going and taking the best piece of land that he could see, God had reaffirmed the promise that he'd earlier made to Abram. He promised that Abram would be a great nation, that he would have a famous name, that he would be a blessing to all the nations. And God had added to that by assuring childless Abram that his own descendants, his own seed, would be as numerous as the dust in the land that God was giving to him. Uh, Abram, who's a wealthy tribal chief now, has settled near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, and he's entered into an alliance with him and his brothers, Anur and Eshcol. Despite God's promise, though, and God's faithfulness, a conflict beyond Abram's control threatens the promise of his inhabiting the land. Five minor kings, who are rulers of local city-states, 
have been ruling as vassals to a group of kings in Mesopotamia. Uh, None of these five kings, the local kings, is godly or upright. Their names all mean some variation of evil or wicked or rebellious or worshipping some pagan god. And so the reader is meant to expect something negative from them just based on their names alone. These guys are bad eggs. And after 12 years of being vassal kings, they decide that they are sick and tired of sending annual tribute to their Mesopotamian overlords. And so in the 13th year, they rebel, they withhold that tribute. And so in the 14th year of their rules, the royal rumble begins. And those four kings bring a powerful force, led by Kedalema, to sort the problem out. As they come down what's called the King's Highway, they sweep through the region and they crack some skulls. You can see it in verses 5 to 7, the list of the nations that they overtake. And despite that victory over superior forces, the rebellious five don't lose their nerve. They decide that they'll go out to battle with them anyway. And so they tackle them in the Valley of Siddim. They're hoping there to turn that location to be a home field advantage because it's filled with tar pits. But despite their pluck, despite knowing the terrain, the four are defeated and they flee for the hills. We're told specifically that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah make a hasty retreat. And we read here that some men, and these kings as well it looks like, fall into the pits. And so that raises a bit of a question for us. How does the king of Sodom reappear in verse 17 if he falls into a pit in verse uh, 5 or 6? Well, Fel can also give the meaning of lowered into or got down into. The king of Sodom may have hidden in a tar pit, uh, much like here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. You'll remember the story of Tarapraha when he was being uh, pursued by Waikato, uh, the warriors coming after him. He hid himself in a kumra pit, and that gives rise to the famous haka, uh, kamate, kamate, I die, I die, kaora, kaora, I live, I live, as he came back up out of the pit. Well, like Tarapraha, they managed to make an escape, but it's an escape at a great cost. Look at verse 11. Their goods and their cargo, both human and material, are carried off by the victorious four. And in amongst it all is Abram's nephew Lot. Lot, who moved into Sodom since we last saw him in chapter 13, verse 12. Now, at that point, he'd been camping near that city, but he was still keeping his distance. It's a city that Lot should never have been in. If, like his uncle Abram, he'd been living faithfully to Yahweh, he should never have wrapped himself up in the warped ways of that city. It was a city which was living in a way which was contrary to God's way. It is Lot's abduction that causes Abram to enter the fray. In human terms, Abram's future has just been derailed again. Strong foreign powers have entered the land and tightened their grip on it. But before we get to Abram, what on earth is a Christian meant to take away from this ancient battle? How is this helpful for us today? Well, friends, while we wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled in Jesus, we are going to see things happening on an international and national political scale which cause us to wonder how God's promises will ever come true. International conflicts will continue to rage in the world around us, and over the past year we've really felt deeply the crisis in the Ukraine, haven't we? 
and it's not exactly an isolated conflict. When we think about the world we live in, it's a time of turmoil. The political movements of China cause alarm. The ongoing violence in many countries in Africa causes unrest. The threat of North Korea being armed with nuclear weapons is terrifying. The unrest that we see in the political system of the USA has an impact on us, even on our isolated island in the South Pacific. As Christians, this ongoing political turmoil impacts us and our hearts, doesn't it? And we can despair. We can fall into the trap of thinking that God's kind of like a cosmic watchmaker who put all of the cogs together in the beginning, wound it up, and then walked away. At our diocesan leadership conference last week, Bishop Jay pointed us to the psalmist who said, How long, O Lord? Don't you see what's going on as these powers work against you? Don't you see what's happening? Your promises to bring freedom from oppression and peace and liberation and salvation are being thwarted by these powers. People aren't hearing and being changed by the good news of Jesus. How long, O Lord, until your reign comes? We worry, don't we? But God hasn't forgotten us. As we wait for the kingdom of Jesus, as we wait for God's promise to be fully inaugurated at his return, we too will be impacted by international turmoil. We will be impacted by conflict. But that doesn't mean that God has forgotten us or his promise to us in Jesus. His promises will endure. This time will not last forever. A king is coming who has the authority of the Father, who will bring peace and concord. A king is coming who will keep his promise. God proves his faithfulness to us. In Jesus' great victory over sin and death in the bodily resurrection of his son from the dead. And he proves his faithfulness to Abram in another great victory. A victory over these invaders who look like they threaten the very promise of God. Word comes to Abram of Lot's abduction. And here we note a designation of him being Hebrew, meaning a descendant of Eber from the line of Shem for the very first time. Tuck that away, the idea of Abram the Hebrew, it's going to be important to us as we continue to walk with him. Abram gathers together the fighting men of his allies and his 318 trained warriors, and he sets off in pursuit of Kedalema's forces. Uh, in a movement of tactical excellence, Abram attacks the baggage train by night with a divided force. Uh, he either flanks them or he employs a pincer movement, but his force manages to overwhelm them and to rout them. Now the victorious four kings are on the back foot, and Abram's soldiers push them up, up, up to the north and out of the promised land. In this moment, Abram has called on all of his resources. He's entreated his allies to battle with him. He's devised a brilliant attack. But more than that, he has exercised his faith in God. God has promised him this land. God has promised him that he would bless him. God has promised that he would curse those who curse him. And so Abram has acted in faith, believing the promise of God. Verse 20 makes it abundantly clear that Abram was given this victory over his enemies by God himself. 
he has been faithful. But faithfulness doesn't mean the defeat of every foe for us. God will not necessarily take out every worldly enemy in the way that we would like, friends. Our faith during this time offers no guarantee that health troubles or strained relationships or financial difficulties or addictions or ungodly attitudes will be wiped away this side of Jesus' return. What we are guaranteed of is that God is faithful in Jesus and he will bring us to the eternal future that he has promised us. If we are found in Jesus, if we have asked for forgiveness, then our sin will not be counted against us. If we are in Jesus, then on the day of judgment, we will not be turned away. If we are in Jesus, then the battle that we face has already been won. We only need to decide how we will respond. We have two choices, to put our faith in God or to seek satisfaction in this world. After Abram's stunning victory, he heads home, and he meets two other kings on his journey, verse 17 tells us. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him, and so does Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. Melchizedek, the king and priest of God, brings bread and wine and blesses him. He acknowledges God as the creator in the blessing and his hand in the battle. If you know your Bible, then when you hear the name Melchizedek, then your mind races to Hebrews 6 and 7 in the New Testament. And there, Jesus is described as being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that idea comes from Psalm 110, but the letter to the Hebrews picks it up and develops this important concept. It helps us see the greatest high priest who ever lived. How do Melchizedek and Jesus relate? Well, Alan P. Ross tells us that in Genesis, Melchizedek stands as a type of Jesus Christ. He unites the offices of high priest and king in the, ancient, in the city of ancient Salem in Jerusalem. Melchizedek's important for us because he came from a people outside of Abraham's people. He wasn't a Hebrew. He wasn't an inheritor of the promises made to Abram but he was a faithful servant of Yahweh, even though he was outside the promise. Abram recognizes him as his superior. How do we know that? We know that because he gave a tithe to him to be offered on his behalf. He paid tribute to Melchizedek, acknowledging his spiritual function as priest. And Melchizedek blesses Abram, verses 19 and 20. It seems out of order, doesn't it? Abram is the one inheriting the promises. Abram is the hero of faith. But Melchizedek outranks him spiritually. He is his superior. From start to finish, the book of Hebrews shows us how Jesus is superior to the established priestly line of Israel. Jesus isn't from the line of Levi. He's not a descendant of Aaron. He's not from the people who were set aside by God to serve in the temple. There is one greater than those, one from outside, Jesus. Jesus is a priest not in the order of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek. 
He is the great high priest who the priests of Israel should have been paying tribute to, who the priests of Israel should have been asking for blessing, who the priests of Israel should have been heeding and hearing and learning from. He is the one who would mediate the greatest sacrifice which would bring atonement not just for a year on the day of Yom Kippur, but the one perfect sacrifice once offered an oblation for the sin of the whole world. Melchizedek points us to Jesus. In this encounter, Abram recognizes the one with greater spiritual authority than him, a king and priest of Yahweh. Friends, we are called to do the same. We are reminded of our bounden duty not to trust in our own righteousness, not to think our good works make us right with God, but to recognize the superiority of Jesus, the only one who could ever perfectly fulfill the law's demand. We are to come to him humbly and meekly, accepting that we can't draw near to God without his help. Without his spirit opening our minds and our hearts to him, we couldn't even have faith in the first place. Without his spirit at work in us, without his sacrifice which turns away the wrath of the Father at our imperfection and sin, we could never draw near to him. Like Abram, we will be sorely tested as we wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled in Jesus. We will have two choices. He has given freely to Melchizedek, and now a demand is made of him to give to another. The king of Sodom, who stands in sharp contrast to the king of Salem. A king of Salem means the king of peace, the righteous king, the upright one, whereas the king of Sodom means the one who lives in evil. Sodom is a place of wickedness, and we saw that in the last chapter. And this king wants the people who Abram has redeemed to be given to him so that he can oppress and torment and abuse them. But if Abram chooses to hand them over, boy, he's going to get a great reward. Abram refuses, verse 22 tells us. And the reason that he refuses is because he trusts God. Abram is not going to have the king of Sodom gaining glory by piggybacking off Abram's increasing name and wealth. It's obvious that he's in the ascendancy. His fame is growing. He is already wealthy. He's just defeated four Mesopotamian kings. And Abram won't give a shred of glory to Sodom. Verse 23. But instead, he returns it all to God, even though it costs him and it costs him dearly. He makes a choice to exercise faith and to wait for God's good timing. He will not take what is offered to him, something which would diminish God's glory, but he waits for God to make good on all that he has promised. He exercises true faith. And here we see the connection to our New Testament reading this morning. The king of Sodom is renowned for wickedness, just like his master, the prince of this world, the devil. And they both offer a quick fix. Satan comes and offers Jesus a quick fix. 
just like the king of Sodom offered Abram a quick fix. He said to Abram, circumvent your faith in God. Don't wait on his timing. Verse 21, give me the people, but keep the goods. The plunder of war must be worth a fortune. And that temptation to give in and to take the quick path out, that is the greatest battle that Abram has faced in this passage. This is a battle like our battles. It's a battle against powers and principalities, not against flesh and blood. It's a battle which rages in all of our hearts, doesn't it? As individuals and communities, we are going to be faced with real temptation like our Lord was in the wilderness. Satan came to him and he tested him sorely. He showed him all of the things the Father had promised to him. But he was given a way to have them without the pain and the hard graft and the suffering that would cost. It would be a cost of his life and his blood. Jesus is being offered a quick fix. All he would need to do is bend the knee and worship Satan. There would be no pain, no rejection, no death. Can you imagine the weight of that temptation on our Lord, who knew what he was going to endure on the cross? What sustained him at that moment? What helped him to choose God's way instead of give in to that temptation? Well, he knew the word of God. He knew the truth within it. He knew that God loved him and would fulfill every promise to him. To find a quick fix, to find our satisfaction outside the promises of God, which are fully revealed to us in Jesus, is a temptation that we face. We are going to be tempted to take from the hand of the ungodly. I don't think I'm alone in this, friends, but there are things which tempt us every day, aren't there? Why work hard in your job where you could just take a little bit? Why endure in the hard work of human relationships when you can find a quick thrill from an affair or pornography? Why spend time at home with your family, with difficult children or grandchildren, when you can easily be somewhere else? Make a respectable excuse of working longer hours or visiting or seeing a friend. Why settle for less than your friends when you can have a bigger car or a nicer house? Why hang out with a bunch of odd bods in a cold old building on a Sunday morning when you could be at a sport activity or enjoying family time or down at the market? All of those things sound more attractive, don't they? Why hang around for tea and coffee here when you can see the people you like at a place you want to where they serve real coffee? Why move to another culture to share the good news of Jesus when you can keep safe and secure at home where life is easy? Why offend or embarrass someone by talking about Jesus where you could just let it go and stay quiet? They're real temptations, aren't they? And so how do we contend how do we fight those temptations in the same way as Jesus? By knowing and believing the promises of God. Every time he responds, he responds with the words, it is written. By knowing the word of God and by trusting his promises by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is able to overcome that very real temptation. By counting the faithful actions of God in the past to us in our own lives, and to his people through the ages, we too can overcome some of those temptations. We will still fall, 
but God will not turn his back on us. Friends, we must fix our eyes on the hope that we have in Jesus. He has been faithful to us in our own lives, hasn't he? He has been faithful to his church. Our God has been faithful to the Israelite people. He has been faithful to Abram. We've seen it in this passage. God has kept his promise to him. The land has been preserved from foreign incursion. Abram himself was blessed. His name has been made greater through the victory that God gave him. And those who sought to harm him in his household, to curse him, have been cursed. Four ways God keeps his promise. He was faithful to Abram. He will be faithful to you. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises. We thank you that your promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. In him they find their fulfillment and completion. Lord, we are amazed that you would welcome us into your family as those outside by the death of your son and share these same promises with us. Would you help us to look to our great high priest, the only one who is righteous? Would you help us to know his promises and his word? In the power of your Holy Spirit, would you please bring it to our minds when we face temptations, that we might overcome some to your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening. Music